Well, good morning, everyone. Every book of the Bible has that common theme. We just say, look forward to Jesus. Old Testament and New, we started this series the week after Easter. We're coming into the home stretch, and uh, we've got a whole bunch of hand motions to, to represent the Old Testament. I'm just going to do the New Testament ones. Uh, the Bible says Jesus emptied himself, and so he took on the form of a man, so like emptying a pitcher. And there are four biographies of Christ that are called the Gospels, which means good news, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he emptied himself, joy to the world, the Lord is come, right? You can sing that later, all right? Then in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit was given, all right? And then we have, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see all the people, the church was born, okay? You laugh, you're going to do this in two weeks, all right? <laughs> And last week we looked at letters to churches. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of those letters. They call them epistles. And we did a flyby of those. And this weekend uh, we're going to look at letters from Peter, James, and John. Now, in the Gospels we hear James and John a lot. That's not them. James and John were brothers. They're called the Sons of Thunder, real boisterous guys, uh, fishermen who left the family business. And indeed, John is that. But the James we're talking about is actually the half-brother of Jesus. So we'll look at Peter and John, who are close friends of Christ. And then James, James is Jesus' half-brother. We're going to look at the letters that they wrote. Now, um, I'm going to expect you to have as much enthusiasm as you did last night around 11 o'clock. All you Buckeye fans, right? So come on now, all right? And, uh, you know, we, I was with, we were at a, 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 not Super Bowl, a, a Buckeye party. We watched the game, Joyce and I did. I watched three-fourths of it, and I had to, had to work the next day, so we left. Um, but uh, we're there, and, uh, you know, one of my friends of mine was talking about uh, the sermon and the series and all that. And we we're talking about what's going to happen with this weekend. Uh, and so... Since Friday, I've had a group text with our team leaders, and it was like, okay, what's the weather forecast? We have until Saturday to decide, are we putting the inflatables outside or inside? And so we're texting back and forth, back and forth, and we finally decided, so there's a, a big inflatable or two big ones in the gym, another one in the Student Life Center, so parents, jump to your heart's content, have the kids sit down and behave. No, other way around. <laughs> Uh, but the, whoever did, like this morning, I woke up, because it was supposed to be raining like, all night, all day. I woke up this morning all excited, 6 o'clock. I like, no rain till 2 o'clock. So I come in, I'd see DeVita around 7 o'clock, and I'd go, hey, we're, coffee and donuts, right? Yeah, coffee, where are they going to be? We're going to put it in the, in the courtyard. Yeah, DeVita, all right, coffee and donuts in the courtyard. No rain till 2 o'clock. 15 minutes later, boom, it's raining. Whoever designed my app should be fired. If you have connections, pass the word, right? And plus, us boomers, technology is not our native language anyway, right? We learn, we didn't grow up with all this stuff, okay? So good news, though, for all of us baby boomers, uh, with social media, it's kind of hard to keep up with it all. There's going to be a, a, a merger uh, of YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and they're going to call it YouTwitface. So <laughs> nothing to do with the sermon whatsoever. Just want to kind of get your attention in case you were having a little lag from the game. So, all right. Well, with, that, with that real theological note, let's jump in. Uh, if you have the app, you can follow along. There are loads of verses we're not going to put on screen. I'll read them as we do this uh, sort of flyby. Let's look at uh, the book of Peter. And each of these uh, letters, writers, have that theme, looking forward to Jesus. And uh, Peter in... Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, 
His look forward to Jesus says, and, and this passage before we go there, you understand that these, this is written 2,000 years ago and there's a sense of urgency. Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. It's any day now. Well, if, it was, if it was any day now 2,000 years ago, it's really any day now now. And if you wonder why is God waiting, the world is getting so bad, there is so much evil going on, there is this uh, approach avoidance almost, if you will, that Peter describes that God knows that once he does say enough is enough, it's also damnation for many who aren't ready. So listen to the conflict, if you will, the patience and, and when to come. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, so don't, don't doubt. As he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Hold that thought. Wait until we get to Revelation next week. The theme is in the part of Revelation, all hell breaks loose. And we're going to see how this earth passes away. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so God is waiting because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants no one to go to hell. But when he finally says earthly history is done, then the, the great white throne judgment happens and people will give an account for their sins. And if they haven't accepted Christ, they'll be damned. So when he does finally call it an end, then it is, it is a horrible fate for many, although it's joy for those of us who accepted Christ. And then here's something that really strikes me as I, as I listen to Christian conversation today and how things are getting bad, things are getting worse, and so how do we prepare for that, all right? He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be, what? In holy conduct and godliness. And if you want to prep, you can prep, and all people want to prep themselves, arm themselves, do whatever, no, but when, when we talk about Christ coming back, the greatest preparation is here, that I can represent godliness and holiness to a world in desperate need as much as possible. And so Peter, along with others, look forward to Jesus. Three themes that Peter has. There are several sub-themes. Uh, one, he talks in 1 Peter 3 that we should be able to give a defense for what we believe uh, to those who are questioning. And we did a sermon series on that. I wrote a book on it called Questionable Beliefs. Uh, there's a passage in there that was life-changing for me at a season in my life that I was drowning in insecurity and inferiority. And I remember just kind of feeling that way and the Lord bringing to mind the passage from Peter that says, you were not redeemed with the futile things of your forefathers like silver and gold, but the precious blood of the Lamb. And the Holy Spirit confronted me, if that's the worth I've placed on you, who are you to walk around like you're like worthless? But the themes we want to look at today in what Peter wrote are suffering, submission, and surrender. Three S words that we're not really fond of. Let's talk about suffering. Understand that you read a lot about suffering in the New Testament letters because Jesus ascended into heaven, was crucified, ascended around 33 AD, and the rest of the New Testament was written between then and the mid-90s, in that 60-year period. And, and the New Testament Christians were facing more and more persecution and suffering, so the writers of these books want to prepare them. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. And that holds true today. Don't be surprised at the way things are going. 
which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, man, we want to share the victory of Christ. We want to share the promise of Christ and the hope of Christ. But New Testament Christians knew we also share the suffering of Christ. And when we do, there is a fellowship with Christ. The Bible talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. He draws near to us like at no other time. You share the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Learn to rejoice when you see bad news, when the headlines shake you, when circumstances disturb you. Learn to rejoice in that because we know that Christ is coming soon. And then submission. Say submission. It's a word we're not crazy about in our culture, especially our culture. I have my rights. You're not going to tell me what to do. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, let me read it for you. Submit yourself. Tell somebody, turn to somebody and say, submit yourself. Because, boy, if somebody else brings a submission, it's a whole other thing. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to the praise of those who do right. And Peter writes about submission. Paul does as well, submitting in a political, societal way. There's also the submission that's supposed to happen in a marriage, a husband and a wife. The submission in the family, children to their parents, and submission in the workplace. Then they reference masters and slaves, but also now employers and employees and vice versa. We're to have a, a submissive attitude that I don't have to have my way, have the last word, always be right. There's that submissiveness. And then there is the idea of submitting or surrendering your pride that goes with that. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, it says, God is opposed to the proud. So if nobody's going to tell you and you've got pride in your life, the Bible says you and God are like this. God's opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself. Notice the theme, submit yourself. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And then there's another thing to surrender. How many of you ever worry or get stressed? Let me see all of our hands. All right? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to do an illustration with me, okay? So get your fingers up like this and just do this. Like you're just, you know, just, no, like have them tap each other. Like you're just all nervous and you know how that goes. You worry, 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 you're stressing, you worry, you're stressing, you worry, and something reminds you, you're stressing, you worry some more, okay? You all that anxiety, right? All right, let's do a little more intense. Come on, let's get intense, all right? You're almost depressed, okay? Or an anxiety, okay? All right, here's what he says. Casting all your anxiety, say all of it. Just for fun. What's one person's situation or, sit, or whatever you're going through? Somebody or something that casts you, calls, causes you anxiety. Ready? On the count of three, say it. And if they're next to you, say it softly. Okay? Ready? <laughs> one, two, three. Okay, all of that. Come on. Okay. Cast all your anxiety on this because he, him because he cares for you. So do this. Ready? And then just, come on, Joyce. Okay. <laughs> and then just do that. Cast it all on him because he cares for you. So when you're tempted, stop it. And some of you, okay, I'll cast it on him. And then by the time you get to the car this afternoon, you're going to be all, by the time you go to bed tonight, you're going to be all, no. Cast all, all your anxiety. Say it again, all. All your anxiety. Not, not the little stuff. Not, no, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, you've got an enemy. 
spiritual enemy. The Bible calls him the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then we were in the service planning uh, years ago, dealing with this verse. And I said, let's get the, 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 like the National Geographic video of a lion tearing up his prey. It got so gross, we decided it wouldn't be appropriate for church. But that's what your adversary is like. Satan wants to tear you apart. And he doesn't mind giving you a little bit of bait to set the trap. I was talking to somebody the other day, talking about how, how just perverted and confused and messed up our world is and people are. And, and there is just this submission to confusion and sin. And Satan will, be, will gladly give you the pleasures of sin, but they're only for a season. And in the end, he wants to destroy you. And you can look at all the addictions. The addictions started out fun. They started out feeling good. They started out helping me connect or whatever. Whatever the addiction was, it started out. Nobody says, I'm going to be a hopeless addict and ruin every area of my life. Notice there's nothing funny about that. It starts out pleasurable, and the Bible says the pleasures of sin are passing. They're temporary. They're for a season. Satan will give you all the preliminary pleasure you want. In the end, he'll destroy you. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, let's go back to suffering for your faith. There are people right now that this Sunday, when they went to church, they went and they went in some hidden back room of a storefront and they gathered together as the church or they hid in somebody's basement or a back room of a house that was covered over they, under threat of law, of legal intervention, being arrested. There are people right now who are in prisons because they worship Christ or they do what I do for a living. There are people who are suffering right now for their faith. There are people that they don't know where their loved one is because they were taken. Why were they taken? Because they were Christians. That's it. I mean, I mean, you talk about other parts of the world where they're suffering for, our, for their faith. So be strong. And then uh, the next, let's look at James' letters. And again, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And he writes in uh, verse 1, chapter 1, to the, to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. If you go back to at the book of Acts, when Paul, Saul at that time, was persecuting the church, first martyr was Stephen, it scattered the Christian Jews. And so they're all over the Middle East. And that's how God began to spread the gospel. And uh, James has uh, a look forward to Jesus' verse in chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient. Say, be patient. I'm just thinking that's just for you. Be patient. Until the coming of the Lord, for the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains, part of the seasonal flow of, of weather in the Middle East. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And I say it again, if he was near 2,000 years ago, he is more near now. Be strong, because the Lord is coming back. He could come back before you eat your hamburger out by the Student Life Center. And that'd be fine with me. All right, so. James talks about a problem attitude. He talks about faith works and prayer works. Problem attitude, not like when you were a kid and your mom said, you better change your attitude. You ever heard that? I remember I have, all right. No, his problem attitude is the attitude you have about problems. Let me read for you from James chapter 1, and let me warn you, this does not come natural. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when you have various trials, when you have vehicle trouble and house trouble, marriage trouble, school trouble, parents trouble, kids trouble, in-laws trouble, no in-laws trouble, money trouble, physical trouble, when you look and you see the news and there's military crises, economic trouble, I mean, societal trouble, you name it. When you see all these things, all these trials, he says, rejoice. Because in the trials you face, in fact, everybody pick one trial you're currently going through or just went through in your life, big or small, whether it's physical, relational, spiritual, financial, emotional, whatever. You ready? You got it? On the count of three, again, if they see it next to you, say it softly. All right? But on the count of three, say a trial you're going through. One, two, three. God wants, wants to use that, if you'll let him, to refine you. You will go through that, and you will be able to look back on that and say, you know what? Going through that, I learned. God did. I saw. And you will be more refined in your faith in who you are as a person, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, those, those fruit, you will be more refined having gone through those trials than had you not. And yes, it is a test. Trust Him. The testing of your faith produces endurance. That attitude does not come natural to me. Anybody else? But we press on. And then he talks about faith works. Faith works, James chapter 2, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. There used to be a song years ago, if you, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, yeah, but I thought Paul just said that by faith, by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. Yes, you're not saved by works. But man, if I, if I am saved, I have Christ within me, the hope of glory. His Holy Spirit is transforming me. Guess what? You're going to see evidence of it. And Jesus said in Matthew, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Christians can't help but do good things. Not for just yourself. That's not a good, not for just your loved ones. Jesus even, Jesus dissed that. Well, I'm a good dad. I'm a good grandpa. No, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what good is that? It's the difficult people in your life. It's the people you're never going to get something back from in your life. It's the people that maybe don't even notice that you did the good thing. He calls us faith without works is dead. You think about it. We get a little defensive of that. But really, in Exodus, it's when God talked about being, when he talked to Moses, I am who I am. I am that I am. But when God introduced himself, Genesis chapter 1, what did he say? Hi, I'm God. Look what I did. Right? In the beginning. God created the heavens. In the I said, let there be light. Let there be, let there be. And there was, and there was, and there was. I'm God. Look what I did. Look at the good works I did. It is no surprise to me then that the one who created this amazing universe says, I want you to have faith. Walk by faith, not by sight. And I want you to be able to see your faith in action. That's what our good 
deeds are about. And then prayer works. Most of us would say an amen to that. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. And there is a place for confessing to people we're close to that we trust what we're struggling with, whether it's a sin, whether it's discouragement, whether it's anxiety, I'm really struggling with, I'm really battling with, pray with me. There's something about sharing that that lightens the load. And then he uses Elijah as an example. How many of you ever prayed for something once and it didn't happen? Can I see all of our honest hands? Maybe even two or three times. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. He didn't just pray once. You go back to the story in the Old Testament. He prayed, looked, nothing. Prayed, looked, nothing. Prayed, nothing. Prayed, nothing. Prayed, nothing. Prayed, nothing. On the seventh time he prays, finally, the rain comes. Actually, a cloud shows up the size of a man's hand, the Bible says. He said, that's all I need. Let's go. When Jesus says, whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be opened. Go to the original language. It is whoever asks and keeps asking, seeks and keeps seeking, knocks and keeps knocking. So persist in prayer. The persistent prayer of a righteous person can accomplish much. Don't quit. Now let's jump to John. John was Jesus' best friend on an earthly basis. And the Gospel of John, he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John writes a, a verse that I'm really glad. Last week we talked about verses I wish weren't in the Bible. I'm glad John 1.9 is in the Bible. How many ever committed the same sin more than once? Times 10. Times 100. I mean, he says in John chapter 1, 1 John 1 verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First time, every time. He goes on, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, his word is not in us. All of us know that, that we've all sinned. And then listen to the tone. You can't help but love John. And by now, John is writing this in the mid-90s A.D. And if Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven like 33 A.D., it's 60 years later. He's like in his 80s. He's got this fatherly, grandfatherly, spiritual kind of tone. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John uses that phrase, my little children, and uses the analogy of a father and God is our father a dozen times in just five chapters of the, the book of 1 John. He's a bit of a spiritual father to the New Testament church. And when you read it, there's this kind of safe feeling about that, what it must have been like to, to be somebody who knew John. And if there is anything that we need nowadays, it's that. In fact, I'll ask you a question. Those of you who are Christians, um, who in your life, it might be your biological dad, I don't know, who in your life has played a spiritual fatherly role, whether near or far, uh, or just kind of a mentoring kind of role in your life that's meant a lot to you? Think of someone. First of all, as names and faces come to mind, say a prayer of thanks for them and maybe a prayer of blessing on their life. And then the count of three, name one of them. Ready? One, two, three. Those people make a huge difference to us. 
I think of people that were in my life and I'm thankful for and how they, how they helped just father me in a spiritual way and mentor me that way. And here at CLC, I'm glad that that's a priority to us. In fact, uh, our men's ministry uh, is connected with uh, Man in the Mirror. It's a national ministry. And uh, they have uh, chosen us as one of the beta sites for a new initiative called 10,000 Spiritual Fathers. And I want to talk to every man here. I'm registered for it as well. On October 8th here at CLC, we're going to have a launching for that. Guys, take a screenshot of that or take a screenshot of the QR code or you can, I think you can do it in the lobby as well. Join us for that as, as we sharpen ourselves spiritually, how I can be a blessing or an impact on somebody else. And it is such a needed thing you know, when you look at the fact that about half the babies born in the United States now are born outside of marriage to an unmarried mom and dad, studies show that that mom and dad tend not to stay together throughout that child's life, and dad often becomes absentee. And so we are raising a fatherless generation, much less a spiritually fatherless generation. Now more than ever, we need men in this church to take that role, not just for your kids, not just for your grandkids, but to impact other kids and young people and young adults and those of us growing up. And so uh, John also talks about transformation. How many of you are still a work in process? There are still changes to happen. All of us. Man. You ever get discouraged with that? Ever wonder, am I ever gonna? You ever think you were starting to make progress and then, ah. Uh, well, here's some great news in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, let me find it. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Again, there's that image. That we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And if there's one thing that kind of bothers me, and I see our trend nowadays, it's that we're living in an increasingly immoral world, and I'm watching Christians kind of look a lot like it. There should be a dissonance between us and the world. What's deep in our hearts and what's most important to us and our identity is not the same as that that we see in the world that surrounds us. And that's why he says, the world did not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, here's the good news. Now we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, ready? We will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. When Christ appears, you and I are going to be a Jesus version of us. All the insecurity, all the struggle, all the whatever, all the I can't, I'm not, is going to be gone, and you're going to be just like Jesus. Now, evidently, that's not real impressive to you. Okay, I'm looking for some kind of reaction here, okay? Remember that, remember that humble yourself part? Some of you are going, well, that's not too much of a difference. Man, for me, it's a quantum leap, all right? I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to be a stand version of Jesus. You're going to be a you version of him. Poof, in an instant. That will be one of the greatest miracles of all history is when all the Christ followers, when Christ returns, are instantly from who we were to just like Jesus. Wow. So... And then John brings love proofs. Brace yourself. Beloved, let us love one another, 
For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Our mission statement is to know God. If you know it, say it with me. To be his people, to value others, to change our world. It's somewhat sequential, but if you know God, if you really know God, it's going to change you slowly from the inside out. It's going to be visible. When you know God, then, then he expects that to have an impact on me. I want to be his person. There is a change in people that we're his people. We're Christians. We're Christ followers. So when I know God, then that change happens in me. And that one of the key changes that happens in me is I value other people. Know God. Be his people. Value others. I love other people I would otherwise not love or give a rip about. And as I do that, as we do that collectively, it changes our world. So let me go back to what John writes. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who is born, loves God is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Boom. Because God's love. Oh, but they're difficult. Oh, but if you knew who they were. Nope. The one who does not love does not know God. Because if you know God, who is so loving, undeservedly toward us, so forgiving, so gracious, it changes me. And as his person, I can't help but love and honor other people. It's one proof of love. A second proof of love in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, for this is the love of God. You ready? You want to know what the love of God is? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus said the same thing. John's his best friend. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. People who really love God do not say this sentence. Pastor Stan, I know what the Bible says, but. So file that away, and don't tell me that. I remember one time, <laughs> I can't remember, I can't, it, was, it was like over 30 years ago. I was on staff, doing a lot of counseling. And I had, some, I had somebody sitting in my office, I had a credenza behind me, and they said they were justifying why they were getting a divorce. Christian, so why are you doing that? Well, you know, I'm not happy, and I just believe God wants me to be happy. I grabbed my Bible. And I slammed it on my desk. I said, tell me where it says that in that book. I know what the Bible says, but. No, if I love Jesus, I'm going to obey him. I'm going to learn his word. I'm going to hide his word in my heart. And my proof of my love for him. And some of this stuff is really hard to do in the natural. Can I get an amen? amen. Some of us have people in our lives that are hard to love. Can I get an Amen. But we got Christ in us, so we can do it. All right. And then uh, let's, let's jump to uh, the book of Revelation, last book of Scripture. It's written by John. I just want to look at the first couple of chapters. And he says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, uh, an admonishment to us. We'll look at the look forward to Jesus verse at the end. But in Revelation 2, verse 7, he tells them to hear with your spiritual ears. He who has an ear, she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Spiritual ears. It's not what you hear, see, feel physically. There is a spiritual discernment as a Christian. We are to use that. And we are to say when we hear and take it all in, what does that mean? What is God saying? He that has ears to hear spiritually, listen to what the Spirit is saying. And then he gives both commendations and warnings. He writes letters to seven churches in the New Testament era. They're all located in modern-day Turkey. The church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he writes both commendations and warnings. There's a, there's a common theme that's going to be coming to all of them. But before I get there, Smyrna and Philadelphia, those two churches, there were no warnings. Just like, I know what you're going through. Keep it up. Stay faithful. You'll inherit eternal life. But the commendations were things like, I know your deeds, your toll, your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate evil people. I see that you test false prophets and you found that they're not true. You've suffered tribulation. You hold fast my name in evil times. I see your good works. You've kept God's word in hardship. And he would commend the church and they would say, but I have this against you. And the warnings were to one, man, you do all kinds of great, but you left your first love. You're going through the spiritual motions. It's worthless. To another, you, you've compromised with sexual immorality. You've become like the culture around you. Boy, if that isn't more of a threat now with technology today. And you've taken in sexual immorality. You've justified it. You've rationalized it. Return, Repent. Another, he says, I, I know your reputation. Good guy, nice, nice, nice lady. You're alive, but really you're dead. I know you're inside. You know you're inside. There's no passion left. And then to another one, you're, you're not hot, you're not cold, just kind of lukewarm. And that was in between two cities. One had hot springs, one had uh, crystal cold water. And it's like both of those are valuable, but to be lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And sadly, for far too many, and that, the church of Laodicea, they were very prosperous in their blessings. They were blessed to complacency. There was no passion anymore. And to each one, there's this common warning, the theme, Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. And let me stop here and say, I don't think this applies just to churches 2,000 years ago. Seven of them have mentioned here. It could be to the church of Butler Township. To many that are here, remember the place from where you have fallen. Are you as passionate about Christ? Are you in love with him? Are you on fire of him? Do you have that same sense of urgency from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. There is a get your act together. I'm coming soon. Don't go through the motions. This is about religion. Don't just do it and be done. No, live it. Let it be a light to people that are in need. And there is an amazing look forward to Jesus verse that's all through the book of Revelation. And it says in Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. That's no surprise, because in Acts chapter 1, when Christ ascended into heaven, the Bible says he went up through the clouds. And what did the angels say? As the disciples are staring up there, he, they say, what are you looking at? This same Jesus will return the same way through the clouds. Fast forward to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What does Paul say? That Christ will return in the clouds 
with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And so now again, Revelation, look forward to Jesus. Behold, he is coming with him in the clouds and every eye will see with him. Every, even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Would everybody say amen? And the next verse, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. And I'm here to tell you, whatever's going on in your life, wherever you're at, whether you're feeling on the mountaintop or in despair, you keep your eyes on Jesus because he is coming back. Look forward to Jesus. Live your life that way. And now more than ever before, as I was talking with someone about just the, the rampant, perverted immorality that we're living in and the confusion and the ridiculousness of some of it. So you know what? It's going to yield a generation, if Christ doesn't return, that has tried everything and ended up as empty as any sinner ever has. And they're going to say, I need someone to be my Savior. And there will be a huge turn of people who want to know Jesus Christ. So now more than ever before, if you grew up in church, this little light of mine, right? I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no. Now the church with Jesus Christ as the head of it is the hope of the world. We point people to Christ now more than ever before. And we are called to build his church and to let our light shine brightly and to keep our eyes on Jesus because he is coming soon. So stand together with us and we're going to conclude this message with this song and then we're going to baptize a ton of people as we celebrate and watch building this church. But let's celebrate today.
to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, hold your hands like you're going to receive this. You ready? Now, to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Would you say amen? Amen. May God bless you with that today. Give him an ovation of praise. 